Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brethren, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature be thus minded. And if in anything you are otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I like it when Paul says, not that I have obtained already perfection, but I press on. Not that I have already obtained perfection, but I press on. Do you ever worry about not being perfect? Thinking about the past? Remembering the mistakes you've made? The things you've said? The times we failed? I was reading a fascinating story recently about a, a lady named Pat Blumenthal. Pat's now 59 years old, but she can remember a moment in her life 42 years ago, just like it was yesterday. She was 17 years old and she was a junior in high school there at Washington High School um, up in uh, right outside of Boston. It was a tough year for her. It was a tough year for her because first of all, she and her first real love had broken up and she was really hurting over that. Then her parents were going through a very messy separation and they would ultimately get divorced. So that year had all kinds of turmoil and anger and I'm not sure that she really understood what all was going on in her life and that anger that was there just waiting to come out. Well, it did come out one day in Latin class. Now she was quite excited about taking Latin her junior year. I mean, she kind of felt like that was sophisticated to take Latin, to learn this wonderful language and what it all, how to understand the, the different words. So she was really excited about it, and it turned out to be a snoozer. Her, her teacher was Dr. Keedy. And Dr. Keedy was a sweet, kind gentleman, a grandfather type. But whenever he spoke, he spoke in this low, monotone and every day when he came in he said open your books she said he always wore those heavy cardigans with the big brown wooden buttons on them always a different color always the same thing she said it was monotonous and so it did not go the way she had planned the way she had hoped to be taking that class and this went on and on and one day whenever he came in to start the class and he said open your books. She lost it. She just lost it. 
She didn't want to read through all these words again, just like they did every single day, conjugating them, reading them out loud from the book. No, she had had enough. And so her hand shot up. She hadn't planned this. She hadn't rehearsed anything. She just stuck her hand up and said, yes. And she said, I just got to tell you, this class is definitely substandard. I am so disappointed in this class. Your ways you teach is so outdated. And she began giving examples of how it was outdated, the exercises that they were doing. And then she said, you could be so much more dynamic. And she began listing other ways out that they could have been dealing with this material. She didn't know how long she'd gone on because she hadn't rehearsed this or planned this. She was just kind of letting it roll. She never raised her voice. She never used profanity. But she was lasered. Lasered in with that anger, lasered in with her complaint, and she let him have it. When she finally got through, you could have heard a pin drop in the room. Silence. And she looked at him. She waited for a response. She figured he would be really angry and come back at her. Or he'd simply say, go to the principal, and she'd be expelled for being so disrespectful. But instead, when she looked at him, she saw this older gentleman slumped down in his chair. He took a long time before finally he said, thank you for your feedback. I will give it some serious consideration. And he did. She said, I wish I could say that it became the most dynamic class I've ever taken, but that didn't happen. But he did try. He began bringing in new worksheets. He began asking questions. We began dialoguing more. He tried. And she said, you know, I know a lot of people were saying, way to go. You stood up and you said what needed to be said. You were able to be honest. But she said, I didn't feel like a victor. I felt like I owed him an apology. She began to fantasize what would it be like to run into him at a, at a coffee shop or a cafe. He'd be there, she knew, in one of his cardigan sweaters with the wooden buttons on. And she could just see her going up to him and being able to say, I am so sorry for what I did in class. I was rude. I was arrogant. I was disrespectful. I'm so sorry. I believe what I said but I should have said that to you in private. And maybe then I could have told you all the pain going on in my life and maybe why I suddenly lashed out at you. I, I wanted someone to hurt as much as I've been hurting. I know you have no reason to forgive me, but if you could, it would mean so much to me. Well, she rehearsed the speech over and over in her head but she never did run into him at a coffee shop and she never found the courage to go ask to meet with him. 42 years ago, and of course, Mr. Keedy is long since dead. But she thinks about that day. She can remember it so clearly. And I want to read you what she said. If you have the chance to say you're sorry to someone, do it. If it's too late, make that apology an intention to do better. In the words of Maya Angelou, 
Do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. It made me think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was someone who did the best he could until he knew better. He was not perfect. No, he had persecuted the early Christian church. He had wreaked so much havoc and pain on people's lives and families. The reason he did it, though, was because he was a person of such deep faith. He loved God. He was a good Jew, a Pharisee. A Pharisee is a lawyer, someone who is committed to following the law to the nth degree. And so he wanted to follow the law because he thought that's what God wants us to do and that's how you be, can be a good person, a righteous person. And so when he then began to see other Jews talk about this man Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, and begin to say things like you don't have to follow the kosher food laws and you don't have to be circumcised and you don't have to take care of the Sabbath, I mean, it went all over him because he was very dogmatic. He knew exactly what he was supposed to believe and everyone was supposed to believe and do the same thing. And so as a Roman citizen, he was able to get letters from the authorities to go and attack these home churches and persecute the Christians until he knew better. He was on the road to Damascus, again, going to attack some house churches when he got knocked off his horse by a blinding light that left him blind and he heard the voice of Christ asking, why do you persecute me? His people led him into Damascus and he was blind for three days. And then when he saw, he not only saw physically, but he saw in his heart. He understood in a new way. He felt he had been confronted by Christ. He began to study his teachings. And now when you know better, you do better. And he began to see that maybe God wasn't asking just for a set of laws and for everyone to do the right same thing. But maybe we were called to love one another, to love God, to treat each other with a sense of dignity. And so Paul begins to have a different approach, talking about God's love. We already saw when we were reading Paul's letter to the Philippians the very first week where Paul says, my prayer for you is that your love overflows more and more with wisdom and insight so you can decide what is best. That's a far cry from a dogmatic approach. I know what you're supposed to do and you're all going to live by it. Or I'm going to throw you in jail. May your love overflow with wisdom and insight so you can decide what is best. He was taking a total different kind of approach. Do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. Paul could look at his life easily and know, I have not yet attained perfection. It's easy for him to look back. But he's also saying, I haven't attained it even to this day, but I press forward. You know, as I'm reading all that, it made me think about 
John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, because he too talked about perfection. He called it Christian perfection. And John Wesley was very clear to say, on earth you and I will never be perfect. We're human. But if we strive so that everything we say and everything we do is motivated out of a love for God and a love for one another, well, that's Christian perfection. It's the best we can do here on earth. If everything we say and everything we do is motivated out of a love for God and others, that, he said, is Christian perfection. I have not yet attained perfection, but I press on. That's what Paul was wanting to say to the Philippians because he was concerned that he was in jail and he might die, which he did. And he didn't want that early church to fall apart, to become cynical, disillusioned, discouraged. And so he's wanting to say to them, you haven't been perfect. You have not already attained perfection, but you can press on. And I believe that's what Paul would say to us today. And it's why I want to continue on in this sermon series, Building a Better World. We've been looking at it for four weeks now. And next week will be our last week, the fifth week, as we've tried to kind of lay this foundation about a theme that we're going to take throughout the year. That over and over throughout the year, we're going to be asking ourselves, are we helping to let God use us to build a better world? That's what Paul was trying to ask out of the Philippians, and it's why we keep looking at his letter, moving through it. Today we are in the third chapter, and as we look at what Paul had to say today, I think there's two important things we need to take away. First of all, Paul had said, not that I have already attained perfection, but I press on, forgetting what lies behind. Now, Paul was not saying that you and I need to repress or deny the past. But Paul is saying you can learn and let it go because of God's grace. Whatever those mistakes were, the things we've said, the things we've done, you can forget those. We can let it go. I like the way Paul said, I am Christ and Christ is me he owns me. It is His grace in me. So I can forget the past. To let it go. And God can give you a vision for the future. How many times are you and I held back because of still worrying about the imperfection and worrying about the past? Forgetting the things that lie behind. You know, one of my favorite authors is Ogmandino. Some of you may know Og Mandino, read his books. He's actually been dead, though, now almost 25 years. He passed away at only 72 years old. But he was an incredible writer. He had a fascinating life story. He, he was growing up with a single mom, and they were very close. And they both had a dream for him, the dream that he would grow up to be a writer, a writer who would help to change the world. Well, they'd already chosen, he's about to graduate high school, he's going to go to college. They had chosen the University of Missouri. They felt he, they had a great course. And right when he was about to graduate, his mom was in the kitchen making him lunch. 
when she dropped dead of a heart attack. And that upset his world emotionally and financially. He didn't go off to college. Instead, he went and got a job for a couple of years. And then he went and enlisted in the United States Army Air Corps. We were in the middle of World War II. He became a bombardier on the B-52. And the B-25 is what it was, the Liberator. And he was fighting right alongside of, of Jimmy Stewart. They became actually good friends. 30 missions over Germany. He survived. It was an incredible time. When he came home, he had some money saved up from fighting in the war. And he knew what he wanted to do. He went and got himself a little apartment, bought himself a used typewriter, and sat down to write the great American novel. Found a lady that he fell in love with. They got married. They started a family. At the end of a year, he hadn't written a word, or not a sold a word. He had written a lot, but none of them sold. They were starting to run out of money. He knew he had to get a job, and so he went and got a job. He hated it. He lost it. Got another job. He hated it and lost it. So he got another job. He hated it. He wanted to be a writer. He'd given up on the dream and he got these jobs. He hated them. And what do you do when you have that kind of pain? He starts to drink. He began to drink more and more and had a real problem with alcohol. He was coming home drunk night after night. One night when he came home drunk, his wife was gone with their child and she filed for divorce. He lost everything that meant anything to him. And he found himself in Cleveland, Ohio in a late November night when it was so cold, standing in front of a pawn shop. And there he saw there was a tag of $29.95 on a pistol. And he knew that that's what he needed to do. It would make his world better without him it would solve his problems. The only problem was he didn't have $29.95. And so he left the big in front of the pawn shop and he went to the library for two reasons. It was free and it was warm. He went to the library. But there was this nagging question, why can so many people be successful and why am I such a failure? He went to the self-help section and he began to read people like Napoleon Hill, W. Clement Stone, Napoleon Hill, Norman Vincent Peale, and the Bible. Every one of those authors, whether you're familiar with them or not, has a strong faith undertone. And he started coming back day after day, reading and reading, and he began reading that Bible over and over, and there were certain verses that just spoke to him every day, and he began to believe that maybe, maybe God could see him in a different way and he could see himself in a different way. He suddenly saw an advertisement in the newspaper offering a job as an insurance salesman for W. Clement Stone. He had loved his books. And so he went and applied and he got the job. He was sober now, wasn't drinking, and he found that he was a great salesman. He started making a good living. And now that he is sober and he had a job, he met a lady, they fell in love, Betty, and they had a child, and 
life seemed to be back on a good plane. And then he saw in a company newsletter, they were advertising for someone to come to the headquarters and write copy and advertisement and manuals there at the headquarters. And it was his wife, Betty, who said, you could do that. It's not exactly writing the great American novel, but you're using your skill. You could be writing. And so he applied for it and got the job. They moved to the headquarters, and now he was writing. And some time went by, and then he saw another one in the company newsletter that said, they're looking for the editor of the magazine Success Unlimited. It had been for the company, and now they were taking it public nationwide. They needed a new editor. Ogmandino had never been an editor of a magazine, but with his new belief and his new ideas and faith, he and his wife began working and working on his application, and they prayed and prayed, not that he get the job, but that God would lead them into what was right. And they turned in the application, he got interviewed, and of all the things, he was chosen to be the new editor of Success Unlimited. So now he's the editor of this magazine, and he has time to write. And so he sits down and he writes a book. And the setting for the book was 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, and it's based around a star. It's a great story. He wrote it. It's a short book. And then he sent it off to a publisher, and they sent it back and said, no thanks. He sent it off to another publisher, got it back, no thanks. In the end, he sent it off to 20 different publishers, and it was rejected 20 times. And finally, he took the book and simply put it on the shelf. Then one month, in Success Unlimited, the magazine was a little thin. They needed another story. It was late. They needed it quick. So he decided to write it. He loved golf, so he wrote an article about Ben Hogan so they could run it in the magazine. There was a man named Arthur Feld who happened to be the owner and president of Fell Publishing. He read the article on, uh, on this in Success Unlimited. He was so impressed with the writing, he wrote to, to Og and said, you're a great writer. If you ever have something you want to have published, you need to call me. I, I'd like to see it. Maybe it could help you. Off the shelf and send it to Arthur Feld, who reads the book. It's called The Greatest Salesman in the World. It's not about selling. It's about how to rediscover your soul. But it's a great story. And so Arthur Feld reads it, and he immediately gets back to him and says, I'll publish it for you. And so soon it is published. The first run is only like 5,000 copies. And he takes one of the first copies to sign it and to send it to W. Clement Stone to say, thank you. Thank you for the way you have changed the trajectory of my life. Well, Clement Stone was getting on a plane in New York to fly to London to celebrate the Christmas holidays. He takes the book. He reads it on the flight. When he lands, he calls back and orders 20,000 copies, saying, I wanted to get to every person in our company. And they read it, and they're now wanting to buy it for their friends. And in no time at all, it sold over 5 million copies.
In the first five years, it went through 35 printings. For the next 30 years, it would continue to sell more than 100,000 copies a year. It's been incredibly successful. A story that really is about finding your soul. It's not for salespeople. It's for husbands and wives and preachers and plumbers. and It's for everyone. And it talks about life, finding your soul. In the end, he would write so many books, The Greatest Salesman in the World, The Greatest Miracle. Uh, he would write The Choice, The Christ Commission. He was a man of great faith. You see it underlined every writing he has. But towards the end of his life, he was being asked, you know, what, what one moment do you think was the most important for your life to turn? Was it the, when you wrote the article on Ben Hogan? Was it when Mr. Fell read your article or read your book? Was it getting the job to be an insurance agent with Clement Stone? Ogmandino would say, It was when I was in the library in Cleveland, Ohio. For as I began to read the Bible, I began to believe that maybe with God's grace, it was time to dream again. Forgetting what lies behind. Not that I have already achieved perfection, but I press on. Secondly, straining forward to what lies ahead. Straining forward to what lies ahead. Not that I have already attained perfection, but I press on, forgetting what lies behind. Straining forward to what lies ahead, the goal, the upward call of Christ Jesus. Paul was saying very clearly, what does it mean to be able to strain and go forward? What does it mean to be able to, to still be looking for how God can use you in this moment? Paul is in a prison cell in Rome. He's in a prison cell in Rome and he knows that he may not live. And yet in that moment, he is still straining for what lies ahead. He is writing these letters. And in the end, he will write most of the New Testament. Not doing the thing he thought he'd be doing, doing the thing in this moment, what he could, that would continue to live on in the blessed life and to truly make us into a better world. It's what he wanted to encourage out of the Ephesians, to the Philippians. You can do this straining forward to what lies ahead. I saw an advertisement recently for a, a fundraiser called Jog for Jill. And it was being put on by a sorority, Kappa Kappa Gamma. They usually put it on every year. And it's anywhere in the nation, lots of them in the nation go on. It's a fundraiser for um, research for lung cancer. You know, there's lots of different fundraisers for cancer that you'll see all the time. But when do you ever see a fundraiser for lung cancer? And that's because lung cancer is not had a very high success rate, very low success rate of being cured, and it's been that way for decades. We've had a hard time making progress there, and we focused on so many others. But Jill wanted to create awareness and to help with research on lung cancer. Jill Costello, 
She actually, back in the, um, in about 2009, she was at um, University of California, Berkeley, where she was a coxswain for the varsity rowing team there at the university. She had been into to crew, to rowing, ever since she had been in middle school. She wanted to be an athlete. Her brothers were 6'1 and 6'2, and they played lots of sports. She was 5'4, 110 pounds. And it's like, what can you do? And she found a coxswain is exactly what you need to be small and light. Not a lot of weight in the boat. You remember a coxswain, what they do? They're the person who sits at the back of the boat, the stern, and all the crew is facing back that direction and they're rowing. And this person doesn't row. This is the person who's the captain of the boat. They're kind of calling out the time to make sure they stay in rhythm. And it's the person who now has to steer the boat. I mean, are we drifting because of the wind, because of the current, or one side's rowing stronger than another? They steer and they keep the boat going the right direction. And they're the person who is going to encourage the crew as they're trying to dig deep and you've got to row, you've got to hang in there. Well, she loved what she was doing. And she was very successful. She was a neat kid. She was going to Berkeley at the end of her junior year. She had a 4.0 straight A's. She was very active in her church. She was a lady of great faith. She worked with Habitat for Humanity. I mean, she was a part of her sorority. She was just a good person. And at the end of the season in 2020, and when season when uh, um, she was her junior year, they started summer workouts and she just didn't feel right. It's like she was having a stomach ache, like she'd had bad food. So she went to the team physician and there they ran some lab tests and they suddenly called her one night and said, we got your lab test back, you need to go to the ER. I mean, your white blood count is just cell count is way out of whack. You must have a terrible infection or something. You need to go get checked now. So her mother took her to the ER and they went and began doing all kinds of tests. And, and at first they came back and said, man, you do must have a bad infection. Then they came back and said, well, actually we see two masks on your ovaries. And then more x-rays, they came back and said, there's a mass in your left lung and on your liver and on your clavicle. Three days into it, they were able to bring a diagnosis of stage four lung cancer. She was 21 years old, never smoked a day in her life. That's not supposed to happen. One day you're happy, carefree, 21 year old athlete, studying hard, good in your church. And the next thing you're being told, you may have nine months to live. She immediately starts taking chemotherapy, praying hard. She feels like maybe I can beat this. She loses her hair, loses her appetite, loses her strength, but she didn't quit. She's determined there's three things she wants to do. Graduate from Cal with a 4-0. She wants to be the coxswain on the number one varsity boat. And she wants to win nationals. She comes back in the fall, she's going to class. The doctors say, don't do that. She went to class. It was hard to get from class to class. She had to have a scooter. But they saw that the tumors were now starting to shrink. 
She continued to study hard. And now she was going and speaking and creating rallies and awareness of lung cancer and that it doesn't just happen to 70-year-old smokers. No, it happens to 21-year-old athletes. She's trying to create awareness and create these fundraisers. In the end, she gets through the semester there in the fall and comes to the spring semester. She goes and tells the coach she wants to be on the team and she's still there and he says, fine, and she comes out and begins to train. She doesn't ask for any special uh, compensation. She does everything she's always done. And then in March, she goes to the doctor, and they said, the tumors are growing again. And now there's one in your right lung, too. She keeps on going. They have a very successful season. They have enough points that now they're going to be in the NCAA uh, finals there in that area and the winner of that would go to nationals. She is struggling. May 16th. She's been losing her strength, but she won't let on. They go through it, and in the end, their big rivalry is Stanford. And they win by a nose. And it's on to nationals. Two days after the NCAA tournament, she walks the stage, getting her degree there at Cal, at Berkeley, 4.0. It's about a week later, they're leaving as a team to go to Sacramento for the national finals. She has to stay behind for one day because she has a doctor's appointment. And at that doctor's appointment, they tell her, we're changing now from how can we beat this to how can we help you stay comfortable the next four weeks. She comes home and she writes on her blog. She says, your life is happening right now and this is the only moment you can control. This is the only minute that really matters. If you're constantly dwelling on something that happened in the past, or feeling anxious about the future, you're missing out on your life. Enjoy this moment and your life will be full. She may have been told she had a month to live. She wanted it to be full. She went down to nationals and the preliminaries went well, well enough they had enough points that they would be ready for the final race. And that day is all going to come down to Berkeley and, and Virginia. There were other boats in the race, but these were the two who really had a chance for national. She had so struggled because of the medication and her strength, but she was there to bring her best. But they started slow. And they were back in the pack. They were fourth. Who's in the head is Virginia. And they're rowing away, but they're back and forth. And it was then that, that Jill is looking at the team and she simply says, dig deep, row hard. And with them looking at Jill and knowing all she was going through, it's like they kicked it into a different gear. Suddenly, they were flying along the water, closing in. People on the sides were going crazy. 
People were screaming everywhere. It's like this is going to be the miracle ending they all hoped for. And they closed in and they finally caught Virginia and they ran out of time. And Virginia crossed the finish line first and Cal was second. They were second in nationals. And now as they pulled off to the side, everyone was slumped over their oars and they were sobbing. They had given everything, nothing left. The coach was sobbing uncontrollably on shore. They were sobbing. It took a while to suddenly recognize the only person who wasn't sobbing was Jill. They got out of the boat and she was the one who runs over and grabs a second place trophy and holds it up. For her, it did not matter what anybody else did. What mattered was they gave their all. They they had their best race possible and that was enough to celebrate. And she was celebrating smiling from ear to ear and everyone else began to celebrate. Four weeks later, Jill Costello was dead. 22 years old, an athlete. At the funeral, it was her mother who stood up and told them what Jill had written in her journal on the last day of her life. She wrote a question. She said, did I leave this world a better place? And underneath she wrote, yes, I did. Wouldn't it be nice to know that you left this world a better place? You can. God can and will use you. It's not that you've already attained perfection. We press on. Forgetting what lies behind. Straining forward to what lies ahead. God will use you to build a better world. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. 
Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.